chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. Listen now to the word of the Lord. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And then there, there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest from each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not, ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they promised. I also took out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does, who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And the assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless Thank you. you. Thank you. It's good to see everyone. Uh, please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for this day that you have made and that we can gather once again to see one another, to hear your word, to sing praises, and to offer up our prayers to you. Thank you for being with us, for hearing us, and loving us. Now, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts together, be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our God, our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. Last week, we saw that Nehemiah and the returnees from exile faced ridicule, harassment, and threats of violence from their surrounding enemies. But as discouraging and as dangerous as external threats may be, they can also help to focus and unify a people. For example, you might remember that it wasn't too long ago when this country seemed more unified because of its opposition to foreign threats posed by the terrorist activities of ISIS, nuclear weapons in North Korea, the Taliban in Afghanistan. We saw last week that when Sanballat and his allies threatened the people and their work on the wall, Nehemiah and his people doubled their efforts to pray and work, ora et labora. They came together with a deeper trust that God would bless their work and protect them from their adversaries. 
And Nehemiah's repeated testimony throughout the first chapters has been that against all external and foreign opposition, it has been God's favor that has made their work possible and successful. But now, in chapter 5, Nehemiah faces a different sort of challenge to the work of rebuilding. Unlike previous threats, this latest discord comes from within their own community. Now there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. They were crying out against each other, not foreign enemies. And I think you would agree that fighting amongst ourselves is worse than fighting against others together. The situation seems to be that those who returned were being blessed with an increasing population. But this must have overburdened their available food supply. Then, because most of the men were working on repairing the wall and having to stay in the city because of the military threat, they could not go home to tend to their fields, even at night. It also seems like they didn't receive any supplemental income from their work on the wall, and so most families probably had reduced income, and the women and children were working the farms without most of the men, and so with fewer workers, and there would be fewer crops, fewer harvests, and less revenue. Now, this situation alone would be difficult, but everyone else was going through it at the same time, knowing that it was a worthy sacrifice to rebuild a wall, and it could be manageable. But the situation was exacerbated by a famine. This forced some families to mortgage their meager land holdings in exchange for food. The poor were made poorer but again, they were used to periodic famines, and if this was it, they would find a way to survive. But on top of the famine, there was also the imperial tax. The tax was based on what the land was expected to yield in a typical year, and it was a heavy burden under ordinary circumstances. But with the famine and a poor harvest, it would be a nearly impossible demand to meet and many families were forced to take out loans. Again, it's incredibly hard, but they were used to this hardship and might still be able to manage somehow. Families under duress because of work shortage and food insecurity and the stress compounded by a natural disaster and taxes. It doesn't sound too distant from us, does it? But here's the biggest problem. The nobles and officials that is, the wealthy among them, were making it worse by lending money at interest and using this dire set of circumstances to take advantage of the poor and the most vulnerable in the land. In fact, things were so bad that some families were forced to put their children into indentured service. Sons would be sold until the debt could be paid off. But it was worse for daughters who would be sold off first, and they could be sold off permanently as wives or as second wives or even other worse things. Basically, those who had food, money, and lands were saying to those who didn't, I'll give you seed for your farms, but sell me your house first. I'll lend you money, but it's going to be at high interest. I'll let you survive. And since I've already taken everything else, 
I will take your children as collateral. It's a terrible and desperate, but not unfamiliar situation where the wealthy were getting wealthier and the poor were getting poorer. Perhaps you can hear echoes of what this country is going through in these verses. The struggle for food security and socioeconomic disparities heightened by natural disaster and human greed. What Nehemiah understood is that it's no use to build a great wall to protect his people from their enemies, only to have his own people destroy each other within those protective walls. As Jesus said in Mark 3, and if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And so, as we look toward rebuilding this year, as we think about ministries of restoration, as we work toward reconciliation, let's make sure that we are not divided and that we have our own house in order. Let's take a look at what Nehemiah did. First, he listened. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I know it's obvious, but it needs to be stated. Nehemiah listened to what was going on. He heard the outcry, the pain, as well as the words, the reasons for why the people were in pain. Outcry is anguish or great pain. It's the word that is used when the people cry out to God in severe distress. We have to listen to those who are in anguish. I know that it's especially hard to listen to one another these days, but all rebuilding must begin with genuine listening. Put aside whatever initial or long-standing judgments and biases you might have and put yourself just for a moment in the shoes of the other. Don't assume that someone is wrong just because they hold a different perspective from you. Ask yourself what others might have to teach you, what ways they might correct you and sharpen your own discipleship. Remember that Jesus intentionally included a zealot who wanted to violently overthrow Rome and a tax collector who worked for Rome. Can you imagine what their Bible studies must have been like especially when they were talking about taxes. But Jesus loved them both, and they both had to listen to each other. Jesus pointed out to them that they had a lot of ideas, politically and theologically, wrong. But he loved them. So ask yourselves, who are the people who are crying out and hurting around me right now? Can I listen to them? Can I for a moment take their side? Secondly, Nehemiah became angry. I was angry when I heard their outcry in these words. Frankie Schaefer wrote a book entitled A Time for Anger, The Myth of Neutrality. And it begins with these words. There are times in which anyone with a shred of moral principle should be profoundly angry. We live in such times. He wrote those words back in 1982. We are always living 
in such times. Now, I can't say that I agree with his positions, his arguments, or his conclusions, but I do like the title. There is a time for anger. There is a time to set aside the Christian reputation for niceness and to express righteous anger. We see, for example, in Mark 3, when the Pharisees sat around in the synagogues, just hoping to find Jesus doing something on the Sabbath so that they could accuse and condemn him. Jesus just couldn't believe it. There's someone in the congregation who's sick. And when Jesus asks them whether or not it was okay to heal on the Sabbath, they refused to answer. And Jesus looked at them with anger. He was grieved at the hardness of their hearts. And he healed the man. Now, Jesus had the advantage of being perfectly righteous, and his anger was never selfish or sinful. We, of course, need to be more circumspect, as James 1 teaches us. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Chances are that if you're angry about something that is directed toward you, or you are angry towards someone who is personally irritating or attacking you, it's probably not a righteous anger. We see earlier that Nehemiah didn't get angry about the insults he received or even the threats against his life. And here he's not being hurt or attacked or disadvantaged by these exploitive practices, but he got angry because others were being exploited. He stood with those who are suffering. When your anger is with those who are hurting, when it's directed against those who are hurting others, that's usually a good sign that your anger is justified and righteous. So ask yourself, what am I angry about? Is it a righteous anger? Whose suffering makes me angry? I think the answer to that question might be where God is calling you to do ministry this year. So Nehemiah listened, he got angry, and then he got a grip. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. He got angry, but then he calmed down and took counsel with himself. He didn't just fly off the handle, he exercised self-control. He figured out his next steps. Knowing Nehemiah, he probably took some time to pray about it. And as he thought it through, he came to realize that there were aspects of the situation that he could not control, such as the famine or the Persian tax. But he realized also that there was something he could do, and that was to confront the nobles and the officials about their unjust, sinful practices. I know that in the past year, I got angry about a lot of things. As my wife will tell you, most of it was not righteous. So it was good that I didn't act out immediately. I know that when I'm angry, usually the best thing for me to do is to slow down and figure out why I'm so angry. And then as I take counsel with myself, often supplemented by my wife's counsel, most of the time, I end up repenting 
for my unrighteous anger. But occasionally, I will find that there are some things that I'm legitimately and justifiably angry about that needs further prayer and reflection and action. And that's what Nehemiah does. After getting a hold of himself, he gets a hold of those responsible and clearly confronts their sin privately. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. Here he's following what Jesus will teach explicitly later in Matthew 18, that we are to approach those who sin against us first privately and then more publicly. To go tell the person one-on-one, the two of you alone, and then to bring along a few people if that doesn't work. And then finally, bring it to the entire church. So Nehemiah first speaks to those responsible, stating clearly that they were doing something wrong. They all knew the teachings of the Mosaic law, that it's crystal clear on the question of lending money with interest. For example, Exodus twenty-two twenty-five: if you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to him and you shall not exact interest from him. Similar commandments and sentiments appear throughout the scriptures in Leviticus, in Deuteronomy, and elsewhere. You are not to lend money to your brothers with interest. I should point out here, though, the law is not forbidding lending money at interest. You'll recall, for example, even Jesus in his parable of the talents Even Jesus suggested that the lazy servant, that he should have put his money in the bank so that he could at least collect some interest. What's forbidden is the lending of money with interest to your fellow Israelites, to those who are members of your faith community. And the nobles and the officials were in clear violation of the law. So ask yourself, Are there people in sin that you need to confront? Whose actions, individually and collectively, are making the lives of others unbearable? I know that most of us, most of the time, don't like confrontation. But it's absolutely necessary if justice and peace are to prevail within the community. Nehemiah confronted the nobles and the officials privately, and then he confronted them and their sin as a community. And I held a great assembly against them. It appears that the private meeting didn't go very well. And so Nehemiah moved to a community-wide gathering. And here he makes his case against their practices by pointing out that they were putting back into slavery those who had just been freed. Nehemiah and the others, they spent their money to buy back those who had been enslaved. And now these nobles and officials were buying those people back into slavery. When this was pointed out, they had no response. What could they say? Whether it's slavery in Egypt or exile in Babylon, God's work is always toward freedom and redemption and restoration. And here they were moving in the opposite 
direction. Nehemiah teaches us here, we need to take responsibility as a community for the whole community. We need to hold each other accountable as a community. And finally, Nehemiah calls for action, for repentance and restoration. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards and their houses, and the percentage, the interest that you collected in money, grain, wine, and oil. Nehemiah's entire movement has been toward healing and restoration. It is not punishment or vengeance against the wealthy. It's not to redistribute wealth equally among the community. The wealthy will remain wealthy and the poor will remain poor. The fundamental economic system remains unchanged. That's another discussion. But for now, the poor will not starve. They will not be forced to sell off their children. And Nehemiah makes them promise with an oath and puts a curse on those who would break this promise because he knows that this is not an easy thing to do. Restoration is costly. Someone has to pay. But the nobles and the officials, to their credit, agree to it. And as a result, all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. That's where Nehemiah wanted to get to. For the entire community to say amen and praise the Lord. Now, as in previous chapters, we could again look at Nehemiah for life lessons or for pointers on leadership. I've done some of that in today's sermon already. Nehemiah's course of actions is useful to consider whenever we face a crisis within our community. But what I wanna highlight once again is Nehemiah's testimony. When addressing the nobles and the officials who were destroying the lives of the poor, Nehemiah appealed to their shared faith and to the testimony that they would have to bear together to the world. When he confronted the nobles and the officials, he said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? In other words, he tells them plainly that what they're doing is wrong. It's not good because it's contrary to the will of God and to their identity as the people of God. He doesn't want their bad behavior to become the bulletin material for their enemies. How many of you grew up in a church that split because of infighting among the members of the congregation? How many of you were hurt by that? How many of your, your faith got damaged because of that? How many people have left the faith altogether because of that? How many people have mocked Christians and their faith and their God because of that? You know that the main reason people leave a church isn't because they're moving to California. It's not because they find the sermon too long or too boring. 
It's because they can't get along with the people in the church. We have to ask ourselves, who's outside our church? Because we, because I'm inside the church. Nehemiah wants their actions to be rooted in the fear of God, that is, in the worship of God, and calls for behavior toward one another that is consistent with God's character and honors God and brings God glory, and that will draw others to God. As the psalmist writes in Psalm 133, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. That's the testimony we need to bear to the world. Or as Jesus said in John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, by your loving one another, everyone will know that you are my disciples. The way that we treat one another is the best testimony that we can bear to the world. This is the key to Nehemiah's appeal and to his own life. His imperial mission was simply to rebuild the wall. There was nothing about social reform or economic justice or religious revival. But Nehemiah, as the servant of God, someone who lived for God, understood that it's not just about repairing a broken wall. That's not the meaning of his life. A prosperous city for the wealthy with a temple and fortified walls, but without adequate food for the people is not pleasing to God. A beautiful church building with stained glass windows is not what matters. The people of God must instead demonstrate a new quality of life toward one another that is consistent with the character of God. In light of God's mercy, in light of the fact that we are the people of God, shouldn't we order our life differently from the rest of the world? We belong to God, and therefore, we belong to one another. We who are in Christ are brothers and sisters. We together are the children of God. What if we really took seriously the idea that we are brothers and sisters? How would we live? Would you lend money to one another with interest? At the very least, we would prioritize our caring for one another, for our brothers and sisters in need, for those who are of the household of God, for those who are the saints, the beloved in Jesus Christ. So as we go about the ministries of rebuilding, of reconciliation and restoration and rebirth, I appeal to you, I appeal to you, to rebuild your relationships within the household of God. Whatever relationships are broken, whatever sources of complaint there may be, let's begin by listening to one another. And let's make sure 
that we take care of one another. Let's not put God's name to shame because of our lack of love for one another. In Jesus Christ, we have been made one. Let's recommit ourselves to one another and work toward one another's good. Let the world see how much we love one another and give glory to God so that all the assembly of God can say amen and praise the Lord. Please pray with me. Great and awesome Lord, we confess that we have hurt one another, both inadvertently and intentionally. We confess that some of our actions and inactions toward one another have brought disgrace upon your name. Lord, would you move us in humble honesty to admit the brokenness in our relationships and move us to begin the hard work of rebuilding in our lives and in our church? Would you help us to listen to the cries of those who are hurting, some of whom that we have hurt, and help us to be reconciled to one another, even as you have reconciled us to yourself so that the world might see how we love one another and give you all the praise. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.